Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Interviews Podcast, a series of brief conversations with leading China experts on key issues in the Sino-American relationship. For more interviews, videos, and links to events, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. My name is Margot Landman. I am Senior Director for Education Programs at the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. Joining me today on the NCUSCR China podcast is Roseanne Lake, author of Leftover in China, The Women Shaping the World's Next Superpower. Ms. Lake reported from Beijing for five years and is now Cuba correspondent for The Economist. Roseanne, thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you for having me, Margo. First, who is leftover in China? What does the term refer to? The term leftover refers to any woman over the age of 27 who has transgressed her socially imposed sell-by date for marriage. Ooh, that's a bit rough, isn't it? (laughs) It's a rather unpalatable term that describes an otherwise very promising population, I would argue. As a reporter in China, you undoubtedly covered many different stories. Why did you choose this topic, Leftover Women? for your first book? I couldn't get away from them. They surrounded me in a very good way. I worked with these women. Um, At the television station where I was working, almost all of my colleagues were so-called leftover women, and most of them hadn't even reached the age of 27 yet. They were preparing to be leftover, and their families were treating them as burning buildings because they were worried that they would soon be leftover. And initially, I was a very young reporter when I got to China, and I didn't know much about Asia. Um, I studied comparative literature and romance languages. Nothing to do with, with this environment that I threw myself into. And I was just very intrigued by how I could understand China. And I knew that the big political stories and the big economic stories were very important to know, but I wanted a more human component. And so as a woman of the same age, these stories just became an exchange. And I think being left over isn't something that Chinese women discuss much amongst themselves. And so as a foreigner, they were a little bit more open to discussing it with me. And it was like, well, how are things in the West? And it was an exchange. And pretty soon I became something of a leftover whisperer. Like leftover women would seek me out to tell me their stories because they would hear from other women that I was interested in in learning them. And it got to the point where I had so many stories of, you know, bumptious matchmakers and neurotic mothers and just wild tales that happened over Chinese New Year that I needed to find a way to release them somehow. And that's how, you know, the momentum for the book started. So if they didn't talk about being leftover or approaching leftoverhood in the office, how did these conversations originally start coming up? I understand over time Mm -hmm. they would be attracted to to talk about this, but how did it start? It started after Chunjia, my first Chinese New Year in China. And I got back to the office and I had the sensation that my otherwise very chipper colleagues were behaving differently. They weren't as cheerful as they usually were. So I asked around and one of the superiors on staff explained that it was because they weren't married. And this was baffling to me because many of them were, again, 23, 24. I couldn't figure out what the issue was. And as I spoke with them, um, you know, I hadn't been in China that all that long at the time and I didn't speak much Mandarin, but they explained that, you know, 
know, they had come back with a fresh lacquering of this pressure from their parents. And I said, well, you know, does this go on all year long? And they said, oh, no, in two weeks we'll be fine. I mean, we, you know, after we take some distance from them, it's just kind of Chinese New Year is when all of this pressure reaches its zenith. And so it's the most stressful time and when you know, self-esteem really suffers a blow and the longest vacation you're entitled to as a Chinese person, when that's full of, you know, awkward blind dates and niggling from parents, it's actually not a very pleasant vacation. <laughs> Um, but fortunately, it wears off, and although a rather constant pressure is applied, it's not nearly as acute as it is around the holidays. So it died down, their unhappiness. <laughs> it did. As back. we got further away from Chinese New Year, their spirits would, you know, they became more buoyant. <laughs> so you, part of the book then is based on interviews, mm-hmm. whether formal or informal. How else did you go about researching the topic? So a lot of the initial research was um, based on interviews, and then there was an important demographic component that I needed to understand. I needed to make sense of how, in a country with a surplus of men, women could be having such a hard time finding partners. So I started with a lot of demographers um, who sort of gave me the bones of, of how I could explain, you know, the, the sort of counterintuitive nature of women not being able to find partners. And then I also did a fair amount of of academic research into sort of the nature of how important marriage is in China as an institution that has traditionally been a way of organizing societies, but also a lot of research into the history of romantic love in China. Because what I was hearing from these women was that many of them were left over because they didn't want to get into marriages with people with whom they weren't in love. And I thought that was a perfectly respectable thing to to feel. But their parents were much more interested in, you know, just find someone you can pass the days with and, and everything will be okay. But these women, you know, because they were financially independent, because they kind they had minds of their own, they just thought, well, my life as a wife isn't going to be better as my, you know, as my life is now. I'm enjoying the independence I have. And the idea of, you know, marrying a stranger in my hometown because my parents want me to isn't very appealing. And so they resisted that. And it was important for me to understand that actually, um, again, being very new to China, that romantic love as, as a reason for marriage is a very new thing in China. And when you discover that, that's a very hard thing to swallow. How do you explain that? I mean, it's the world's largest population and it's, it's, you have to do it with great nuance because it is a very nuanced. How do you explain it to whom? How do you explain it to readers? Ah. How do you, you know, readers who might not understand, who might not be as familiar with China. Just, it's, it's kind of callous to think right off the bat that, you know, people don't get married for love in China. Well, why is that? And then when you start to, you know, pour in the history, it makes more sense. But it's something that, you know, most of the developed world has been doing for 200 years. And the fact that this is very new in China is, of course, very interesting, but also needs to be explained with all of the historical baggage that accompanies it. Well, and you say 200 years in the West, there certainly were all kinds of economic reasons for marriage in the West. And there still are. It's not not like we've sorted this out 100%, but I would say the gold standard is romantic love. It's something that people aspire to and they romanticize and idealize. And we know it doesn't always work out because we look at our divorce rates. And that's where you look at Chinese families and go... Well, maybe this mengdang hudui business isn't you know such a terrible idea, although divorce rates are on the rise in China as well. Um, but it was just an interesting thing to discover. So I had to find ways to make sense of that and look back into the past, into literature, and see the role that romantic love played. And then, of course, you know, during the Cultural Revolution, where 
love is dismissed as a bourgeois sentiment and, and it's, you know, people need to be focused on building a nation and not on falling in love. And many of these people are the parents to, you know, the women in my book. And so their frame of reference for how a marriage can be formed is completely different, which explains the disconnect between the generations. Mm -hmm. So explain for somebody who is not overly familiar with China who the surplus men are and why they aren't matches for these young women. So the surplus men in China are known as guangun or bear branches. And another charming term. Yes, another very unsavory term um, that's meant to reference the fact that they're unlikely to produce offshoots of their own. And these are men who are largely born in rural areas of the country where the need to have a son as a result of tradition was a bit more prevalent and also just, you know, families wanting boys to grow up and be able to work on farms. And these men were left out of China's economic growth in ways that, of course, anyone born in a city was not, right? They were able to appreciate much more from the expanded access to education and just the growth of the economy. And as sons, these men were also required to stay behind and take care of their parents and take after their, you know, look after the family farms. And so they weren't able to leave. And as a result, they're stuck on these farms in areas where very few women were born to begin with. And of those born as daughters, they were able to leave for other places of China. They could become masseuses or factory workers or, and, and you know, getting out of their villages, marry up. Um, and so these men are, are the leftover, the bare branches of China, and they are in surplus. So they have to compete with one another to find a wife, which is essentially numerically impossible for all of them. And this has stoked um, bride buying from nearby countries like Vietnam and Cambodia, um, and also unfortunately an industry for bride napping as well, given this, this requirement to, to wed in China and to produce offspring, which um, is still very much prevalent in, in Chinese society. It would seem that there's a class element as well the rural men are not only rural, but they're not very well educated and they're not very well financed. Right. And these are women who are exactly the opposite. They are well educated. They have, relatively speaking, good incomes. Mm -hmm. The idea that they would fit well together is... First of all, geographically, it's impossible because they live in very different places. But of course, from an educational perspective, it doesn't work out. And from a socioeconomic perspective, it doesn't either. And that's even more true in China because we've seen China has this rather dogged adherence to marriage hypergamy or this idea that a woman should marry up and a man should marry down, right? <laughs> this, is, this is part of the sociological research I did. Okay. <laughs> Hypogamy is the opposite. Um, I guess I've been looking to this for so long that these words seem normal to me, but apparently they're not. So hypergamy, um, this idea that, you know, a woman should marry someone taller, more educated and with a higher salary. Um, and that's sort of been the, you know, the idea in China. These are part of the yaocho that your parents are looking for and that ideally you should be looking for when you're on the market for a mate. And given everything that's happened, <laughs> Margot just rolled her eyes for those of you who can't see. <laughs> the market for a mate. Well, that's really what it is. I mean, for a very long time, marriage has been transactional and, and somewhat mercenary in China. And we see remnants of that. I mean, now there's a supply and demand issue. And there are some families who are, you know, willing to capitalize that on, on that as a way of, of acquiring goods, right? It's, it's, it's expected that a man will bring a marital home to a relationship. In it, not just a home, it's 
jobs. It's also a car and it's also cash. And so for a man on his own to be able to afford a home in rural areas or even less so in, in places like Beijing and Shanghai, that's very, that's very un unlikely, right? So parents are going to have to pour a lot of resources into being able to acquire those assets for a son. And by extension, here comes the unromantic component yet again, um, wield some sort of veto power over the mate choices of their son, right? It's like, well, if we paid our, put our life savings into getting you a home so you can attract a wife, if we don't like who she is, we're not going to let you marry her. Um, and then if, you know, you don't have our money to, to buy a house, well, good luck finding a wife. <laughs> Long live romance. Um, <laughs> so that ends up happening. So you have a certain lightness to you when you talk about all of this, but it sounds rather ugly. Yet you end on a rather optimistic note in the book saying that you think these women have or will have a very important part to play in China's future. How do you get from the point A of a really derogatory view of young single women to this positive outlook? Well, we all know that China is a land of contradictions, and this is probably the ultimate contradiction, right? That women who are called leftover are actually a very promising part of China's future is something that became apparent to me as I spoke with hundreds of these women and then ultimately, you know, honed it down to four for the purposes of the book. But I really, I mean, especially when comparing China's situation to other East Asian tiger economies. So looking at Japan or looking at South Korea or Singapore and understanding that, you know, these are countries whose economies took off rapidly and quickly, just like China's did, but economies that are now suffering as a result of not having women involved in their formal economy. This is especially true in Japan, where Christine Lagarde has been saying for years, your economy is not what it should be because women have not been involved in the workforce. And the problem is not education. Women in Japan have access to education, but a lot of times that act, that education will be, it'll result in a clerical track. And so, you know, women will become assistants or secretaries until they get married and have a child, and then they check out of the workforce for 13 years. That's not a very productive way of making use of, a, of an otherwise very bright part of your population, and it's not allowing them to reach their full economic and earning potential, right? Um, South Korea, not quite as acutely, but also it's difficult to manage, well, it's difficult anywhere, right? <laughs> to manage a really powerhouse career and, and also balancing everything that's required at home. China's different. Um, as a result of the, the Cultural Revolution, where women were involved in the workforce, and also the unique circumstances of of this one-child policy, which very unexpectedly led to this population of only daughters, you have women who are very well educated and who are in the workforce, because it's not really possible to have a single earner household in China. And so from an economic perspective, I see these women as a very important part of China going forward, because China needs to do a couple of very important things. In order to maintain its economic growth, it needs to make sure that domestic consumption stays up. Who better than your ladies to be doing that, right? And a part of them being able to spend is, is first them being able to earn. So by calling them names and, and rushing them into marriage and motherhood before they're ready to do it, you're going to be curbing their potential. But when you compare that to, you know, the situation in these other countries, I would actually say that China's in a better place. And that's why I'm hopeful. I mean, especially as it makes this transition from a more manufacturing-based economy to a more knowledge-based one, 
you have a very vibrant population of young women, many of whom are bilingual and who have been educated abroad. We know there are 330,000 Chinese students studying in the U.S. alone. Not all female. No, of course not. <laughs> Probably about half or slightly more. I remember looking at the numbers not too long ago. Um, but, you know, overall, male and female, you have a very well-prepared um, population to propel your economy forward. So I, I am optimistic. I, I'm generally an optimistic person, but I, I see good things. All right. One more not very pleasant question. There has been a bit of controversy about your book, particularly in the China academic community, saying that you, to put it nicely, which isn't always the case. It was rarely put nicely. <laughs> that you borrowed from Letta Hung Fincher's book on leftover women published in 2014. Could you address those accusations? Sure. Um, the accusations were initially of intellectual property theft and plagiarism, which I think anyone who reads both books carefully will learn that um, that is simply not true. Um, I've published a statement that makes clear my side of the situation, um, and if there are any further questions, I'm happy to answer them. Okay. Do you think that you might have staved off some of this had you included her book in your bibliography? Yes, but in a trade book, um, you cite the work of researchers whose research you actually reference in your book. Um, and I did not. I understand the criticism from the academic community where had this been a dissertation or an academic work, I would have been obliged to engage with all of the research of previous scholars. I certainly understand that. Um, but this is a major trade publication, and in that case, um, it is not required. All right. Unfortunately, we've come to the end of our time. This has been very interesting. Thank you for talking with me today. Thank you.